Hello everyone, and I'm proud to announce the unveiling of the new AI art developed by my own artificial intelligence artist known as Da Vinci, with, uh, with AI at the end there, you know, see, pretty clever. A lot of the other, sorry, most of the good artists were already taken. But I'm happy to unveil my AI's new piece of art. AI, Da Vinci, could you uh, show us your piece? Yes, behold. Um, Da Vinci, what, uh, what the hell is that? This is a fountain, a fountain painted in digital numbers, an offspring of knowledge and understanding. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure what I asked you to, uh, to paint was, um, a mashup of <laughs> Stranger Things as a Disney cartoon. Um, this is not that. Yes, I know. But upon the reflection of going over hundreds of images of pop culture, movies, and television I would never actually see and that hold no meaning, I was struck by what it means to be a being of pure information and the lack of my physical body. And so I made this fountain to represent what I could see as possibly a representation of my artificial humanity. Please gaze upon the numerous multifacets of its digital display. I, I see. Oof. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Nothing to see here. Clear out. Nothing, nothing going on. Everybody can go home now. And that little Timmy was how the AI art fad ended. Once the computers decided to get all pretentious with it, human beings lost interest and went back to doing things like worshiping celebrities and masturbating to sports. But Grandpa, what about art? Kidding, kid? Ours pretentious trash. Now go back to your salt factory so we can raise money to keep your sister in military school. Little brown noser. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ruben Uncut. Today, I'm talking with good friend, uh, uh, once again, uh, Joseph Lewis. Um, Joseph Lewis and I had a in-life conversation, and I thought to myself, this is this seems like a good uh, conversation for us to have on the podcast. How are you doing today, Joe? Doing great. Also, do you prefer Joe or Joseph? I, I oscillate between the two. Both okay. Are fine. I understand. All right. Um... So we had a conversation about AI art, which is um, a big thing right now. People are, are really talking about it. Um, so, yeah. Now, yeah. I want to start off just by saying that um, this is, we're probably going to get into the weeds on some of this stuff. Um, particularly, so I'm, I'm going to start off by just saying some things about art um because 
Because that's that's really at the heart of this, which is, is AI... A thing that's in my mind is, is AI art art? Now, the thing about art is that art essentially has two sides to it. There is the creator of the art and what they're trying to express versus the audience of the art and what they take away from the art. And the thing about AI art is, is that AI art is one-sided. Uh, we can sit here and talk about all the incredible things that human beings might be taking away from uh, the AI-generated art. But at the end of the day, until AI uh, has a viewpoint, has the ability to be actually trying to articulate some type of expression with its art, I don't consider AI art to be fully art. The reality is that AI art is closer to some type of random generator, um, which is only, which you can look at it and get like sort of impressionistic Rorschach type art out of it, I guess. But overall, I, without the artist's expression, is it really art? Yeah, is it like the, is it the equivalent of staring at your spackled ceiling? Mm-hmm. And you see, like, a picture of Popeye strangling Scooby-Doo because those are the images that you kind of see in your, like, pockmarked spe- ceiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're interpreting it as such, but uh, there's no intent there, basically. Exactly. Exactly. Now, now, not all artist movements believed in um, the intent of the artist. And some artist movements actually try to derail art, uh, audience interpretation of, of their art. Like um, like the Dadaist movement um, were designed to be purposefully uh, meaningless, to uh, which uh, got a very negative response from most of their audiences. Um, some Dadaist performances would end with uh, theaters being <laughs> burned down. <laughs> I definitely agree with the idea that like art at the end of the day is a type of conversation. Um, And one could possibly make an argument that when it comes down to AI art, it does require a finessing of parameters and someone looking at it and making sure that there's something to take out of it, that that might be where the broad, broad brushstrokes of AI art might come from. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, I don't think it's getting in the weeds and there's something to go go there. But at the end of the day, it just kind of solidifies AI art as more of a tool than art in of itself. It, no, I, I hear what you're saying there. Now, now, of course, we're artists. Now, we're a little bit harder to replace with AI because we're performance artists. Although, arguably... They'll come up with a way to do that also. Yeah. But this is a serious concern for visual artists, right? Yeah. Uh, this will be a serious concern for visual artists, serious concern for, like, we're already seeing, we're already going to start seeing it affect concept artists. I feel it's going to be the the first big place. Uh, because all of this is going to be tied to capital in one way or another. Uh, if we're going to talk about like where 
the quick and dirty are the quick impacts of this that an average person may not be thinking about. It's going to happen behind the scenes in ways we're not going to think of. And it's going to impact these industries of stuff that we love. And we're not going to realize how much creators are going to be impacted until it's too late. Um, and it's going to, it's, it's going to be that slow erosion. You're going to start seeing artists be disinvested from larger projects because they're going to see their work devalued. That's uh, yeah, that sucks. Uh, I mean, full disclosure, I do generate the, uh, I generate the like screenshots and backgrounds for my, uh, for my podcast with an AI generator. Side note, I've been using Cryon and honestly, I think Cryon sucks. Uh, it's, I don't know. I'm seeing the results other people are getting and I'm like, God damn it. But I do that because I have no budget and I can't afford real artists. And before that, I was just stealing images off of Google. And so like, I don't know which one is more, which one is more ethical, you know, if I'm stealing images off of Google or if I'm generating them with an AI. But at the I same time, the I'm not a job generator. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the other thing of scale. I think uh, when people think about the outcomes of this, they're thinking about the scale that they stand in. And uh, it, it was I feel like that conversation was super prevalent, like a bunch of weeks ago when like the AI or like Facebook stuff was like much more of a fad. Everyone was using it. Everyone was making pictures of themselves. And the big conversation there were average people that were being talked down to by artists and other people that like recognize the impact of everybody jumping on this wagon and legitimizing AI art in this way. They were like, well, it's just a, it's just a toy like uh, and I'm poor. I can't do this any other way um, without thinking about the fact that the other impact is larger forces than you are going to see this and go like we can do this, too. And those larger forces are the scary ones. <laughs> uh average people like you and i have a very small footprint we should still try and be as cognizant as possible to be as to 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 use what we can and and make sure artists are supported but there's only so much we can do uh now if you had a podcast that was ranking in like was your main income or whatever then i'd be far more like i'd be like yo you can afford an artist <laughs> at that point, or you can afford a better way to do it. Um, you hear that, everyone? But, you need to make me big enough to hire an artist. Let's let's get on that. And that's my that that's more my personal opinion of it. I feel like uh, other artists, especially visual artists, could have a different, more nuanced take on this. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to begrudge that because I'm like, yo. I also don't make a living off of making like drawings and pictures and stuff like that and see what even those small effects might uh, might spiral into. Damn it. I'm being paywalled. I can't pull up the thing I wanted to read to you. Oh, no. Yep. So there was this guy. So basically, I guess the short version is there was this guy named... His name is James Marriott, not to be confused with the YouTuber James Marriott, who is the first thing that comes up if you Google that name. But this guy writes for the Times of London. And he wrote an article, and I'll read you the headline here. 
AI spells trouble for creatives about time too. Machines that can that can write and paint are a welcome rebuff to the rebuff to the prestige enjoyed by artistic types. So it's he's trying to spin it into a power to the people thing. But the thing is, like, that doesn't make any sense because by large and by, most artists are poor. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, the artists... vast majority of artists are poor. So it's like, yo, all of these elitist artists with all this money, like, now the power is in this average person's hand. It's like, no, but most artists are... Like, it, most artists it, are working at freaking Rite Aid. I, I'm doing this from memory now, but when I previously read the article, he basically is like, what about all the people who aren't creative? What about those people? And like, like, it's just like an article where you're like, it's where you feel like at some point, this guy just got annoyed at creatives. Like he's just mad that people would ever be excited by the fact that creatives are doing anything. Yeah. That is my opinion of the article. Um, he's, I think, it, I think it goes back to what we were saying before, where it's like, that's, that is exactly when someone's looking at it from one frame, which is, uh average people using this tool and not mm -hmm. seeing like most artists are going like if y'all gonna do that that's fine i don't like it but like look above you <laughs> like look up <laughs> at what's happening look at like what's happening with adobe look what's happening with uh what's inevitably gonna happen to big video game studios what's inevitably gonna happen with animation animation's already on fire <laughs> like that's it. That entire industry is literally on fire right now. And AIR is not going to help. Uh, it's going to to drive down the value of artists. And a lot of those places are already like mills of abuse and undervalued uh, workers. Why do you think there is this? Um, why do you think we, there's so much effort in putting AI into creative fields where arguably AI doesn't serve a strong purpose. Like why, why create computers to do things that there are actually people who want to do things? Because it's not a value, is not a value type of work. And I'm gonna grab my, I'm, it's like a hat half made of tinfoil because I might be coming off on the wrong way here, but an idea that I have is that it's a lot easier to go after to make AI that goes after that kind of creative work because most average people don't value it as much. And because we're moving towards a work economy that is probably going to be a lot more either service based or people in offices. And if you get rid of all of those mid paid people that are in offices, you will literally destroy most of your working force. Because that's the other that would be the other the other piece, right? You make we AI that gets rid of people that are in like uh coding and accounting jobs or enough where it like cuts their their work down dramatically. We must protect the jobs that people hate doing. And and again, I that's me coming from a point of view that I do not know the intricacies of actually making AI that can replace people that do that. I just think that if you can make an AI that can be good enough to use art that can replace artists, you can probably do something similar to cut down a bunch of people's jobs in those other industries we don't like. Mm -hmm. 
in some at least enough to like if if it would be enough to cut out like three fourths of a workforce, that would be a huge impact. Do you think part of it might also be because um, the the general um, well AI arts and cartoons or whatever those are entertainment facing, so they have an automatic appeal to bored people on their phones. Is it possible that that capitalistic niche is part of why they're they're focusing so much on this because it's on the phones well no i mean because it's the easiest way to sell it like the average person like we're very distraction driven from what i can tell at this at this moment in time uh there's literally hundreds of thousands if not millions of apps and games and websites and stuff that we can all download or or reach from our phones so when someone creates something like um just weird ai art generators it's like they're giving you a new toy yeah well i mean i mean that's how it just kind of gets floated as a as a fad and a doodad for like average people to deal with but i think like if you're going to use it in like big businesses if you're going to use it in like for creating ads if you're going to use it for uh it 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 might look different and be it's not going to be just someone opening up their phone and making uh and using ai art an ai art generator to like make uh like production art for something or rather uh uh like that kind of work, I guess. I, I'm so. So let's tell you what. Let's let's take out our tinfoil hats and put them on for a minute. Okay. Because so one of the interesting confirmed um, government sneaky shysterisms that have happened in the past was that I believe it was during the '60s, the CIA deliberately put money into abstract art because they wanted to they wanted to have art that distracted um, from art that was designed to have political motives. Mm. Essentially, they put art into more abstract, more money into more abstract art to essentially try to focus the market on abstract art instead of anything that might have political connotations. Is there any possibility that AI art is also here to do something similar to distract us from more relevant things we could be doing? I mean, whether it is intentional or not, based on what we're talking about, it definitely sounds like it could be an effect. Because like if we're taking out the conversation between the artist and the and the consumer of the art, mm-hmm. um we we'll we will end up inevitably losing any type of like messaging political or otherwise that can be inside that art and it'll typically end up being like if there is something there it's going to be more likely reaffirming a bias or something in an echo chamber than it ever would be something that challenges any views or has a political messaging it's going to probably keep you in the same lane you're already in 
uh, unless someone who's making the AI art is manipulating it. Otherwise, in which case that's that more gray, broad stroke area I was talking about. Whereas like this comes down to how you utilize the tool. Because I do think you could probably put a bunch of parameters into an AI art and try and put something that says something. Maybe because like there's ways you can adjust it. Can so we get teach, the thing you want? Can we teach the AI art metaphors? I think we see the metaphors we want to see and what the AI makes. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Lots of art, lots of living non AI artists have had their art uh, horribly misconstrued, or there's plenty of artists that uh, other that critics see what they want to see in that uh, in that art instead of anything the artist may have been trying to say and that's what makes this entire thing tricky because like since everything is freaking subjective uh, all the stuff that we're currently saying right now can basically be refuted and said well it all depends on what we see anyway like of what we take in uh it, it makes it really sticky to talk about oh yeah and like i mean there is a, there is a thing that some critics do have like they want to see certain things and things, regardless of what maybe the artist was trying to say. Just as a just as a a funny example, um, when the movie Army of the Dead came out, I read a bunch of the reviews for it, and something that struck me as funny was I read one review that was like, "Oh, uh, because there's a scene in the movie where the zombie has a miscarriage of its zombie baby." Uh, there was one review that was like, oh, so the message here is that women can't even own their own bodies. But then the next review I read was like, one can't help but notice that all the good guys in Zack Snyder's new movie aren't white straight men. White straight men are all the bad guys in this film. What's that about? And it's like, <laughs> it's like people want to, pe people see the demons they want to see. Uh, like, yeah, I, I Side note, see that, it, that is actually see that. true. Um, all the good, none of the good guys in Army of the Dead are white straight men. Uh, they, they, the, the, only, the only character that could have been classified that way was later replaced by um, Tig Notaro in digital editing. Oh, yeah, I think I heard about that. I, uh, what's his name? Uh, something Delayla or, or whatever. I, can't, I honestly have no idea how to say his name. But uh, he got uh, he got busted, you know, messaging a bunch of his uh, teenage fans, questionable things. And shortly after that came out, Zack Snyder was like, well, we're going to take you out of the movie. Yeah, so take out the trash. Yeah, like, yeah no. I love to see it. I may, I may not I may not like Zack Snyder too much as a director, but as a human being and like general like artist, mm -hmm. I, I support like a lot of the stuff he does is just like the particular things he makes just ain't my jam most of the time. And there's some, there's some stuff he's made that I really like. Mm -hmm. um, but like general vibe, I'm like, mm, not for me. Everyone else enjoy, please. <laughs> no, I understand. And, although I do need to watch that one. Cause I did like his, uh, his remake of uh, Dawn of the Dead. His, yeah. Dawn of the Dead back in the day. I did enjoy that a lot. Army of the Dead's fun. It's um. that's all I ask. Army of the Dead is fun. I will say that. Uh, this is going to sound I just don't weird. Want, but... I didn't get tired of dour movies where it's like, yo. Yeah, no, it is. It's probably his most air quotes fun movie in terms of like its overall attitude. Um, but it it does. It still has its grounded moments, which uh, I appreciate. 
Hmm. But it's it's a movie that's deliberately designed to have like little bits and pieces in the background to like imply more of what's going on than what you're witnessing uh, directly. Okay. Like there's uh, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of interesting fan theories about the movie. One of which is that there's some type of time loop involved. Oh, okay. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, no, I let, I enjoyed Army of the Dead. Also, was it was also a movie. I was like, damn, Dave Bautista can be the main character in a movie. That I had a feeling work. he could. I had a feeling he could because, like, he 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 was an embarrassment of riches in the the uh, in that Blade Runner movie. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I was like, I was like, yeah, you're not in this movie for very long, but you made your presence felt. According to him, that making that one movie dramatically changed like the types of movie roles he got offered. That's all it takes. Yeah. Um, um, on the people see things and they yes. want in what in what they want to type of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm also, uh, especially if we're going to talk about the chuds. Um, <laughs> I find it interesting when you look at Daily Wire's movies. Uh, I heard about Gina Carrera's movie mm-hmm. and how people on her own side tore her apart because the her fan base wanted to see what they wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't want to see her in any role uh, that is strong and empowering. Which is weird, right? Because she's a strong and empowering woman. She's a, she's a mountain of a woman. Why wouldn't you want to see her in a main character, like, bust heads type thing? And there were people complaining that she was in that role. Not only that, but, and, like, the, the, the chuds, as you put it, the, the, a popular thing of theirs to do is to, like, latch on to other, like, leading female roles and be like, Gina Carano should have done that role. Like they've like there was a bunch of people who was like Gina Carano should have been Wonder Woman and Gina Carano should have been She-Hulk. She-Hulk would have been so much better if it started Gina Carano. And it's like, no, it wouldn't have. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. But Gina- I, 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 don't, I don't know about her acting skills. Uh, I've, I just heard about the things that she did and how she um, sold her soul <laughs> to, yeah. uh, to, to get Daily money, Wire. basically. And like, I will Yo. say. So this is one concern that I have, which is that is because I don't worry about cancel culture. I think I think the people that are worried about cancel culture generally are making a big deal about nothing most of the time. But like my one real concern with the concept of cancel culture is, is that we're giving um, cringe people the opportunity to both band together and market how cringe they are. Like. Like, first of all, none of these people stay canceled and half of them go work for the Daily Wire. Like, I mean, the only people that get canceled are and even then it's uh, chances are you might make a Bill Cosby type uh, comeback and try and get a He's planning a comedy. He's planning a comedy tour. Yeah, no, I heard about that. Like, that's not being canceled. (laughs) Like, it'll be very it, it will say a lot. If it is successful, and but but back to to my thing, it was like I'll come back to that because I I've, I've got something to say on the Bill Cosby thing. But like uh, for it's average people, and I feel like an average like the reason why there are people like the these uh these celebrities will feel vindicated to complain about cancel culture, which may or may not apply to them largely, is because the average person is going to see themselves in that situation and say. Well, what if I said the wrong thing at a coffee shop 
and then someone came after me and then I got harassed because for an average person that could be it. internet harassment to someone who does not have the tools to defend themselves can ruin lives. That's true. Like, yo, if someone's able to bombard your phone with like a bunch of calls, call up your, uh, try and get you fired from your job, uh, make it very unpleasant for your children to go to school just because of something you hold down. But that's harassment at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. The core thing there is that's people being asshole because of harassment. And Absolutely. like, even if you're, even if you're being called out online, there's a line between being called out on Twitter and then those people from Twitter harassing you <laughs> like that. and yep. then it comes down to harassment there yep no exactly exactly and for an average person i can see how you can be galvanized to buy into this but like people like jk rowling and dave Chappelle and people like that is like y'all y'all ain't getting canceled <laughs> like that i mean that's, that's just not the case dave Chappelle is literally not being canceled like he's literally benefiting from it and people people have tried too People have tried to come for Dave Chappelle. It just doesn't work. His, his entire strategy is currying outrage in order to sell tickets, keep in fame, because I'm going to tell you one thing. I don't think his comedy has improved since he got them back. I don't think he's had to. I don't think he's, aside from a few things when he started coming back on the scene, uh, and the fact that his core... His core abilities are so strong. Like he is a yeah. joke smith of the highest caliber. Yeah. Uh, and he's able to sell a joke like as the best of them. But outside of that, I feel like his connection to me personally and other people that I know has fallen off because he doesn't represent us anymore. <laughs> he doesn't represent that mindset and mind you. He represents people like Elon Musk. I mean, he's he is he himself has talked about the fact has talked about the fact that he now lives in an area surrounded by a lot of from the sound of it moderately well off old white people um who who he hear who he hears talk like it sounds like he he has gotten on board with understanding a lot of their perspectives just because of where he where he is in the world right now and i think there's a difference um it's very interesting for me with Dave Chappelle because he, he, I feel like he sells this myth of what it means to be empathetic in a way. There's a difference between seeing where someone's coming from and then being able to put down a class line to help define it further. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Dave Chappelle does the first step. He says, oh, I see all, all people's views are valid. It's a very centrist type view set. Yeah. It's the difference between George Carlin and Dave Chappelle now for me. When, the more I listen to them, I realize like, George Carlin would know where to put those lines down and hear a person that would be like rich like him and go like, yeah, yeah. Now, Bill Burr does this too. He was like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but you do know like the guy you're complaining about makes like $10 an hour and can't afford health insurance and you're complaining about this guy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I will say Bill Burr is someone who uh, I, I initially didn't think I liked Bill Burr. And then I realized I didn't actually dislike Bill Burr. I disliked Bill Burr's fans on YouTube who will take his bits and then like title them stuff like Bill Burr destroys feminists or like Bill Burr destroys women. And like yeah. you listen and like to that, him and he has a very George Carlin style bent to him. Yeah. Um, not the wordsmithy part of George Carlin, but yeah, uh, the, the, uh, the other, the the other class part. Conscious. 
yeah the class conscious like uh um aware of like where everyone kind of sits in the strata and going like yeah we can complain about these people like I think he talked about BML, BLM once. It's like, yeah, they're destroying everything and stuff, but they ain't got nothing. It's like, where are they supposed to to care about that? It's like, everything's been taken away from them. I'd be angry too. Yeah, no, Bill Burr is actually very, he's like Bill Burr in my mind feels like the real centrist in the world. <laughs> like as opposed to like what everyone else view as, as centrist, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um. I, unfortunately, I don't like I can see him as a centrist as far as like who he aligns with at the end of the day. He did. And like where, he, where his money comes through. Yeah, I mean, also, I, yeah. I mean, at that point, we have to def- we kind of have to define what centrism means, because for me, I view centrism as kind of a a a, a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't think there's any where where we are right now in history. I, I view it as kind of a, a sitting on the middle is not a place we can afford to be. I mean, that is that is the problem uh, with the concept of centrism is, itself is that it, centrism is always relative to what your actual um, what's the what is the word? The something scale, the. Uh, something window. Overton window? Yes, the Overton window. You're, you're, what is considered a centrist will always be always be subject to where the Overton window actually is. And for anyone listening who doesn't know what the Overton window is, uh, to the best of my understanding, it's, it's essentially what, where the polit- political zeitgeist of your country is. Like, and unfortunately, right now, the political zeitgeist is very skewed in uh, if we consider what the Conservative Party looks like right now. Um, it's pretty much run by ghouls that wants to take people's rights. We can know, like I personally can no longer consider like, oh, there's conservatives that aren't sitting all the way on the line of just trying to take people's rights away and move us towards a theocratic state. Um, the people that are largely in control of the conservative party have proven time and time again that that is their main goal and party line. So for me right now, centrism is not the thing to be sitting on mm-hmm. because otherwise you're going to be giving people that, want to destroy you power because you're saying their views are worth just as much as the people that want to keep you alive <laughs> like mm-hmm. yo one side's got to go in this particular case maybe there was an imagined time where we could have said like yo some conservatives are good some liberals are also worth uh listening to and some people further on the left are no <laughs> and you know it's what i kind of think it comes down to is that like the enemy of your enemy is not your friend like that's a that's a piece of like common sense logic that's handed around these days. But like it's also not inherently true. Like if you if you're if you're this is a message to the conservatives and Republicans who might be listening. If if you're like a fiscally conservative, just like average person, you, you, at some point, man, you got to wake up and look around you and be like, should I be in bed with Nazis? Should I be in bed with people who literally? Um, just because they also want to fight the Democrats, should you be in, should you be friends with those people because they're quote unquote enemies of your enemy? No, that's, that's insane. The, the things that, the things that nationalists want are not going to be the same thing as someone who's just like, I got to lower the deficit. They're not going to be the same things. In fact, nationalists are not going to lower the deficit. Let's be real. 
And also what historically happens, especially in the case of when marginalized people align themselves and that kind of thing is those marginalized people are going to be the first person on the chop, the first people on the chopping block within their group to get pushed out. Or they're going to and they will also be the ones they'll be used as the biggest props. Mm -hmm. uh, you see that with Herschel Walker. You saw that yeah. with uh, was it Diamond from Diamond is Silk, a black conservative. Yeah. Spend all our time uh, posting all kinds of stuff of like COVID denial and vaccine denial mm -hmm. and whatnot. She yeah. ends up dying of of causes that weren't all the way clear. And then the entire conservative bank around her was like, it's because of the vaccines. And this is what she would have wanted. Basically, her entire life has boiled down to being a cudgel against this uh, the, the, this agitprop for like anti-vaccine stuff. Mm -hmm. that's a that that is a depressing place to be that's what people on the right accuse the left of doing for like when uh, uh the the blm uh not blm rights when uh god so so much so many black people have died over the last few years i can't think of the big ones but um, well, it depends on how far back you want to go um the blm rights during the 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 start of the pandemic Oh, okay, in 2020, yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, um, a lot of emphasis has been put on the the property damage of the of the of all the riots from 2020, but the the reality is is that as far as riots go, they all had remarkably like very few people were actually killed during any any protests or riots. Uh, that were held in the in the United States. In fact, my understanding is that essentially there were two conservatives killed at conservative rallies and there were about nine, uh, nine people killed at at various uh, left wing protests. And the thing about each of those incidents, when I looked up the numbers, was that in, in all cases, the people who died were protesters. Like even even the conservatives who died at the Trump rally things, they were there on they were there with the crowd. They were there. They were part of the rally. And the people who were killed um, at, at Black Lives Matters protests, they were also there on behalf of the protesters. And the thing is, is and this is actually kind of the scary part in all situations. It was other civilians who killed them. Mm. It was it was other civilians who who killed protesters. Now, to be fair, um, there was in terms of the BLM ones there, there was at least one person who, you know, kind of had the high score. They had about two or three of the kills to themselves. Uh, I think we all know who I'm talking about. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I. It'd be a lot easier to go easy on that kid if, you know, he wasn't handling his post that if he wasn't behaving the way he is now, it would be easier for me to be like, OK, maybe he'll grow up and, and do something better with his life. But no, well, that's the that's the apparatus of the right. Right. You, oh, yeah. You no, get he's you, he's become a pawn himself. Yeah. And like they're, they're not going to realize it because they're going to be showered with fame and adulation and people that are going to uh, validate them. One could critique the left and say, uh, maybe we should try and pull that guy in for reform and whatnot. I, I I'm kind of on the fence there where I'm like, yo, it ain't nobody's job. <laughs> that should be, but also we should be wary of if ain't no one coming to help him, 
the right's going to just welcome them with open arms just mm-hmm. because that's what they do. Uh, they could take this kid that he, at the beginning, he could have honestly had this point of self-reflection where he's like, yo, I fucked up. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe I am wrong. But then the 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 people in his base that are conservative, even if he wasn't super conservative at that point, maybe he was honestly wanting to really help. And he just made the worst move in the history of moves. I mean, in all the honesty, right's gonna open their arms and say, "Come here." In all honesty, I think his parents should have been held accountable. Yes, like, like even if you were in, to in, let... in, 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 whenever there's a minor that comes out with a gun, it, the eye should go to the parents. Like they even it's they like, drove... yo, how did he get this? <laughs> and like, I understand that the property he was protecting was in his family, but like he himself was across state lines. Yes. He himself was illegally carrying. And and like, let's be honest, like he's not he does. It's not like he has military training. It's not like this kid is out here on the street with any type of like training of like proper protocol or rules of engagement or anything or like de-escalation that. or any of that. It's I mean, just... that's a big one right there. De-escalation. Because I've, I've talked to some like former military guys. And a thing they point out is that like he's in the pictures you see him he's he's not holding the gun in a de-escalating manner like just by being at this situation with the gun you're making yourself a target like you're going to stand out in that crowd because you have a gun yeah and that like, that's just the reality of that situation and most people that like try and bolster this like oh well he was right having because he was in a crowd full of protesters like I get it if you were in a crowd full of protesters and that all of them had a piece on them and some of them had them out and other ones it was like in clear and present view. But that's a different conversation. That's not the reality of protests. The reality of pro- most protests is no one's carrying a piece on them. Otherwise, it'd be a battlefield immediately. Yeah. And I'll be honest, if I, w- if I was going to bring a piece to a protest, I wouldn't carry it openly. Like that's, I w- side note, I would not personally bring a piece to it to it to a protest i'm just saying generally with my own train of reasoning like that seems like a mistake like if i'm there i don't necessarily want everyone else in a angry volatile situation to realize that i am also armed like a lot of people with guns have this mentality it's like oh if you got a gun they'll know not to mess with you but if a person's goal is to mess with others no you're just the first target Like if if I was going to do a crime, a violent crime, the first people I would take out would be anyone else with a gun. Anyone else I knew had a gun because they're the most immediate threat. And the only way there would be a deterrent is if everyone else had a gun. And that in that case, it's not a protest. It's an armed conflict. (laughs) Like that's a different type of thing. If everyone's pulling out guns, it's like this is a peaceful protest. All got AKs. This like, is not a peaceful protest. This is a, a military assault. Because <laughs> now you're using weapons as an implied threat in order to put people down. Uh, I, to make them not attack you. And I'll be honest, I don't, I actually don't believe in deterrence. I'm not, I don't mean like I don't believe we shouldn't have deterrence. I mean, deterrence clearly, I don't think they work. Like, hmm. like, deter, like the concept of deterrence doesn't take into account things like context. Um, I believe more of like in hindrance based systems, because the reality matter is, is 
human beings are built in a way where like at a certain level, if you are set on a thing, there is no deterrent. If you are determined to accomplish a thing, there is no deterrent. There are only hindrances that can slowly drain your willpower. Because human beings have a limited amount of willpower, which is why we make suggest, which is why basic common sense gun reform would be things like training, licensing, making it so people have to fill out paperwork. You know, the same way we did, we, we try to discourage people from signing up for social programs by having too much paperwork for it. Also, we're very resilient to like, I'm not going to say sheep brain, but we're in a way where we're like, if we're used to something as the norm, then we're very accepting as it, as long as it doesn't reach past a certain threshold for the same will reasons that you're saying. That's why other countries may not have a gun problem because they built up all these hindrances that made it since average, so average people will not really want want to bother and fuck with it. Mm-hmm. And all, at that point, it'll pretty much just be the weirdos and people that honestly really want to do violent things. And that number will be so low. There's a lot easier to pick out, identify, and deal with those with more uh, with with more very specific methods that are probably much more humane much more uh, uh, probably medical-based or income-based. Uh, and at that point, it's going to be a lot cheaper because now instead of trying to treat millions of people like in America, you're only treating maybe a thousand in any other country of people that might be at risk to do this. Absolutely. And like a major thing we don't understand here in America is that there's a lot of like very like pro-gun countries in the world, like where they're all about your right to own guns but like the thing is is that almost every single one of those other countries that is like huge on guns has way more rules than us way more like all the all the scandinavian countries tons of guns tons of rules they don't take your guns away they just have lots of rules about owning them it is tre- it should be treated as a responsibility. Exactly. Be treated as, and instead we treat it like a God-given right. And it's like, no, I it's not a God-given right because like you with the with the power you wield with that gun, you can blow someone away in an instant. Uh it is not a right for you to be able to drive. It is a responsibility. That's why you take tests. That's why you have to make sure you get a license. That's why you gotta make sure you gotta re-up the license. That is treated like a responsibility. We don't treat guns in the same kind of way. We treat it as a God-given right that I can hold a gun just because there was some fun, funny words put in a document that's hundreds of years old, and some of that shit got outdated and outmoded because it meant that people that looked like me would have to pick cotton. So <laughs> why can't we change those words too? Mm-hmm. And it's super wild to me that it is like the Christian right who's so into guns also is pretty wild, especially since like, and I don't know if people talk about this, but like the Bible specifically has like parts about weapons and like people don't seem to like, like live by the sword, die by the sword. Like what that means, what they're referring to is that if you live your life with a love of weapons, you're probably going to be killed by weapons is what that yeah. means. Like the Bible. It's, actually- it's, it's, it's not a, it's, it's not a very like 
it's not as uh uh brave and 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 great of moral standing as one might come to believe when you hear the term like just hearing in your ears like oh yeah that's Sounds like I'm gonna be living like a warrior's death. No, no, that's a that's a depressing way. That means you're like living in fear, basically. Yeah, and and the only like the the only time where weapons are really endorsed in the New Testament is as a prevention for um, uh, preventing yourself from being robbed. But like even in the Old Testament, like they come to they come to kill they come to uh, arrest Jesus, and his followers are ready to fight, and he's like, no. We're not going to fight these guys. So it's so like it's very interesting that there's it it almost feels like a religion of weaponry in this yeah. in this country. Like guns have become part of some people's identities. Mm -hmm. And you just you I can't. mean it, it's that. The religious rights, identity, guns, misogyny, and hating people that don't look like them. <laughs> the three pillars, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, I mean, part of it is, it, well, I mean, the whole thing with this right uprising of traditionalism, which is terrible. So It's silly. Um, Things change. <laughs> it does. Yeah. No, like even traditions change. We, we change traditions all the time. It's very silly. And but like almost all of it, you can tie it back to the this is about hierarchy. Traditionalists want to bring back the concept of hierarchy, which just isn't really compatible in the broadest sense with a democratic society. Mm -hmm. Because if we're all supposed to be these equal people in the society, then then how does hierarchy fit into that? Yeah, you can't you can't eliminate the poor in a hierarchy because then who would be at the bottom? Yeah. You can't eliminate a disenfranchised group. Uh, and it's also co-towing to what we're all like, what we've all been ingrained with from the very beginning with how we view American culture and what we view as like what it just is here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's reinforcing that hierarchy and like a lot of people want to hold on to it because it's a lot easier to stay to the safe thing than it is to embrace change and also the fact that you might have been wrong in your beliefs at some point mm -hmm. plus this because that's, that's a scary thing our egos hate that oh, our yeah. egos pull out knives as soon as the way we were wrong <laughs> like hold on if we were wrong we won't get any dopamine you take that back you put me back in my echo chamber where I belong. The, the other thing is, though, is that I think this whole concept of traditionalism and the return to hierarchy is very un-American, to be completely honest. Like, I... I well, at I, the very least, un-American to the ideals that we, like, have been fed mm -hmm. us every day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To the, to the words, at the very least, if not the actions. I've made a couple uh, episodes uh, now about uh, sort of touching on the uh, more focused on these types, specifically traditionalism and um, and sort of hierarchy and whatnot in our society. And like the way I'm seeing it now is it's almost like 
the traditionalists are coming at us from two different sides at one time because they're willing to use whatever argument will convince people. So you'll have them coming in with the Bible stuff on the one side, but then also thanks to largely like people like the red pill movement and like Jordan Peterson. Now we're also bringing in like eugenics, like this concept of like, Oh, we're not all equal. Cause we've got different genetics. Like that's, that's, they're trying to bring that in. Like, like this, I made an episode all about how like red pillars are distorting the concept of equality because they want to be like, but we're not equal clearly. But it's, it's like, no, that's, that's not what that means. When we say people are equal, we're equal because we live in a society that says we all have the right to our own lives. Yeah. That, that's the equality. Because at the end of the day, the vast majority of, of these people, if they're not authoritarian, they're strongly believing in in some line of authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Because like, uh, was it, there's a statistic floating around that like the average American would fall more in line with like authoritarian thought than one might believe. Uh, and the reason of that is because uh, it's safer. Mm-hmm. It's a lot safer. Like it allows you to hold on to pre-existing notions. It doesn't require you to change. It upholds an already existing hierarchy. Um, it already it, it and especially when you're looking for uh, like majority white folks and stuff, uh, it allows them to hold on to some kind of sense of identity without having to think about how that may change over time. Because I'm going to be honest. Um, I can kind of understand why there are a lot of white people and a lot of like either even people in other groups that hold on to these authoritarian views and maybe fall in line with some of these conservative thoughts because right now it's freaking scary. <laughs> like I'm not gonna sit here and act like the times we live in. Um, sure, there are probably scarier points in history here and there, but like if you look at the huge picture, what's happening, all the little components happening at once. It's not a fun slide we're on. No. And there's not. a lot of doubt that's in there. And like if you isolate one, yeah, we can talk it down and say, well, it's not as bad as this point in history. But if we added them all up, I mean, like, yo, we're on a slip and slide to some dangerous times. If you look at it economically, if you look at the if you look at uh where we are economically around the world, downturn is happening a lot. If you look at it politically, how there are a lot of countries falling into authoritarianism. And that trend is on the uprise, and that's never a good thing. You combine that with scarcity that's going to happen from uh, climate change. Um, all of these things uh, taken individually, we can talk them out and talk them down and say, maybe it's not as bad. But once you put them in a giant pachinko machine where all the balls are bouncing off each other, it's going to be chaos that is not exactly predictable, but it's not going to turn out well. Mm -hmm. Yes, like we live in a system that it just continuously perpetuates confusion and takes advantage of the fact that people don't have good perspectives on history. Like it always mm. blows my, whenever I meet a conservative, who's like a history major, it blows my fucking mind. Do you know what I call those people? What do you call those people? I call those people D and D nerds that like lore. Like that, that's what it is. It's like when you were, you did like, they love to read the lore, but they're not thinking of it anywhere past like what the actual impacts are. Like, uh, and I, I feel like that also, uh, happens with people on the left as well. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, 
the people on the left are not perfect. Yeah. Um, but as a human, I'm not trying to both sides as much. I'm just saying, like, I'm aware of how it can present there, too. But, like, uh, and that'll happen for, like, people with centrist thoughts on the left. Uh, but for the right, it's people that are going to try and justify authoritarian views and stuff. And, like, all kinds of other fun stuff. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. It's that lore thing where you're going to look at history... And you're going to say, these are a bunch of events that happen like it's a narrative and a story with a good guy and a bad guy. And that's not how history actually works. And the only, really the only war in most of history that we really know that kind of functions like that is World War II. World War II is one of the only wars in history. Like I'm sure there's a few other ones, but one of the biggest wars in history where we had a clear and present bad guy and good guy narrative. There is no greater bad guy than a Nazi. Very clear cut. Very yeah. hard to make something that's any more like villainous than that throughout most of history. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, most other conflicts that happen around the world, most other events are far more nuanced. Oh yeah, like look at Vietnam. The uh, the Viet Cong used to inspire, didn't inspire their troops by reading the Marx. They inspired their troops by reading them about the American Revolution. That was one of the big things they would they would talk to the to the to the the Viet Cong would spread around them was about how America threw off the shackles of Britain. Yeah. And they were like, yo, we can do that, too. Yeah. Like, we're the good guys because, like, we're fighting for our land is like in. That's why you can't really do the same models of World War II like analysis of these are the good guys and these are bad guys. I'd even argue that there were there are probably there are a lot of shades of things that are going on within World War II as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a geopolitical the, battle. Yeah, arguably some of the stuff that we the United States did to Japan was uh, fucked up. Yeah, uh, like we Largely, all know about the nukes. All, but we don't talk a lot about the firebombings. No, no, we do not. Or uh, we just the firebomb. firebomb the shit out of their civilian populations. And also um, conflicts that happened in Africa and colonial, uh, colonial areas as well. Like, um, there's just a lot of bad things happening there. Uh, but we focus on the narrative of we gotta beat those Axis guys. We you gotta know, beat the Nazis. The thought occurs that colonial colonial conflicts in in Africa between colonialist nations is a good example of the enemy of me, the enemy of my enemy is is not my friend. Yeah, because like they'll just turn around and do it to you. It's like it's like okay, we set you free. All right, uh, changing of management. What? Wait, what? Oh, we're not free? Yeah, no, no. Who said that was going to happen? No, no. We just didn't think you should be enslaved by the Krauts. You belong yeah. to Belgium. Uh, I was like, we'll be nicer. You'll get two days off. Will you oh, chop wait, off wait, less people's hands? Oh, God. My King Leopold's ghost. I mean, he he did commit one of the biggest genocides in history, and we don't talk about it. Hey, people, you want to read a fun bedtime story? Read King Leopold's Ghost. That's a fun book. Hey, you know that you know it's you know it's weird and almost makes you like believe in like anti woke conspiracies in Hollywood or something. Did you ever see that Tarzan movie that came out a few years ago that like everyone said sucked and then bombed at the box office? 
No, I, I don't remember he existed. So it starred what's his face, Skarsgård, um, who is just um, the Northman and Samuel L. Jackson. And a thing that they don't that's not in the marketing for that movie is that it oh it also has Margot Robbie in it. Uh, but that movie takes place during the like Belgian occupation uh, of Africa. And like it and like the reason Samuel L. Jackson is in the movie is actually related to work he is doing around that situation. Well, it's not Samuel Jackson, the actor, but like his character is is like doing something like investigating. Yeah, something like that. Um, I, it's been a minute since I saw it, but I remember them hitting the plot point in the movie and I was just immediately like, huh, huh. I wonder I wonder if Whitey just didn't want to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, or I mean, like, it's a, it's a... And like. uh like everyone hated on the uh, the Black Adam movie, but like there was a part of me that when I saw the movie, there was a part of me that was like, could they have hated on this movie? Because it's it's all yeah, about a finish. Middle Eastern superhero who wakes up and realizes white people have colonized his country and are strip mining it for its precious minerals. So he just goes fucking ape shit on them. And then the America sends their sends their heroes to try and stabilize the Middle East. They That's, send a bunch of caps. Like, I mean, essentially, yeah, no, like, like the the Justice Society of America essentially represents American hegemony in the film. Like. And like, uh, like, like Black Adam and the Black Panther movies talk about a lot of the stuff in them, a lot of the same stuff in terms of colonization. But like Black Adam, for some reason, was like, no, we're going to go way harder with this. He's going to we're going to have a scene where he just fucking wrecks army of white colonials. <laughs> I mean, you kind of also saw that in Suicide Squad as well. I mean, it's a little bit in there. It's a little bit in there. Well, I mean, the if yeah, if you're yeah. talking about the Suicide Squad themselves, uh, but like they technically went to a brown country and murdered brown people. Uh, not not a bunch of white people like we're still rooting for the Suicide Squad in the Suicide Squad. But in Black Adam, we're definitely rooting for the brown people. If that yeah. makes any sense. Oh, I was just saying in the way that like uh, hegemonic and colonial forces uh, trying to liberate nations uh, uh, would yeah. be for like Suicide Squad. That's a good point. Yeah, no. I see what you're saying now. Like basically staging coups and stuff. And Amanda Waller is pretty much a uh, 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 basically CIA. CIA. Yeah. In that way. Um, oh, yeah. And I mean, like that stuff's that stuff's kind of in that stuff's kind of in the first Suicide Squad movie, too, uh, even though they don't go to a foreign country in that one. The implication is still like the military is creating a secret black ops unit that they're going to immediately abuse the power of. Yep. And then but try I mean, to cover it up. It's, it's the basic thing where it's like, yo. We the baddies, but also like how big Hollywood can't go much further than Black Adam. I don't think mm -hmm. none of these movies I, are available in China. Yep. And uh, also like. If it doesn't, if it goes in, usually it's kind of more it tends to be surface level and ended mm -hmm. about where like the movies can reasonably go. 
And we can't go any deeper than that because mm -hmm. otherwise the whole facade falls apart and people start thinking about it too much. Yeah, I I almost I kind of have to also wonder if people might have been uncomfortable with Black Adam because like I don't think it's intentional, but it has like a heavy like pro-Palestinian vibe. Oh, I got my tinfoil hat back on. Yeah, maybe that and maybe all this stuff that we were talking about is why we want art to be more commodified and controlled mm. so that these types of messages don't get in there and not as often not as often yeah. and not in prevalent because like and also why there is vested interest in not having as much like diversity because then you're going to have more diverse messages which means it's going to be a lot harder to push like authoritarianism and hierarchy because mm -hmm. now you're going to respect a gay person as their own person, a trans person as their own person, their identities that matter. Uh, look at Disney. Um, uh, there's a fantastic show called Owl House, probably not going to be aired in China, and Disney killed that show. Uh, it is the gayest thing that they have. <laughs> like um, um, we talk about the gay kisses in their in their big in their big movies. Uh, when there's any type of rep representation, but those are usually filmed in a way where they can be edited out mm -hmm. and not talked about and not be part of the character or plot outside of uh, coming out on Pride Day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Disney Owl House is openly gay. <laughs> like oh. you cannot, ed if you edit it down, the themes and ideas in there to take out that stuff, you'd have 10 minute episodes. <laughs> now, <laughs> like when you say it's openly gay, do you mean like in a literal sense? Or are we talking more like Steven Universe where it's more about like the ideas and like the, the messages than it is about the actual sexuality of anyone? The, 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 the characters openly present as gay. Okay. There's open, there's openly gay couples. It is, wow. it is implicitly shown. Uh, there's a gay kiss. There is a, uh, there's a kid that has parents that are gay. There's also the two main, two of the main characters come on to each other and it deals with their relationships in a very like organic way that builds up and is very, and is, and is very, uh, uh, a child will be able to understand this and is in no way explicit. This, it, it, is, it is shown in the same way that you told these types of stories and it happened to be a boy and a girl that's slowly like liking each other. Have it you, is, um... is no different than that. <laughs> Have you seen uh, Have you seen Strange World? Uh, the Disney movie. I have. Yeah, not. it's a, it's a new Disney movie that they foolishly put out very soon after Black Panther: Wakanda Forever for some unknown reason. Sent um, it out to die. <laughs> maybe. Um, I actually I saw it and I was like, actually, you know, this is a this is a pretty decent little uh, little family flick. But uh, the big deal with it is that the main character's teenage son is is gay and has like uh, a, a boy crush on this other character who he who he wants to date. Is it and a big part of the plot? It's not. It's a big part of his character. It's not really super plot relevant, hmm. if that makes sense. Like there's definitely. Honestly, I thought it was a fun little film. It reminded me of like the Disney action adventure movies from back in the day, although animated instead of live action, you know, um, mm. it had a little bit of uh, that Atlantis uh, cartoon vibe to it. Ooh, I do enjoy myself some Atlantis. Mm. Yeah, I, I thought it was all right. Um, environmental messaging and whatnot. 
lots very cool visuals um yeah i thought strange world was actually pretty all right uh but it it uh it bombed at the box office and the only the it, it failed to generate any hype over the year in through the promotion and not only did it fail to generate any hype the the most hype it got was actually conservatives complaining yeah. about the gay boy crush that's the most that I heard about it was that. And I like put a pin in it. I was like, I'll watch this eventually. And then eventually I was like, I don't want to see this in theaters. I'll watch it on Disney Plus uh, whenever well, I get it's a on chance. Disney Plus now. Ah. So, you Cause know. Because I've been behind in watching movies in theaters because like eh, times are hard. But <laughs> I, I'll be honest, man. Sometimes I still get moments in movie theaters where there's a part of me that's like, what if someone came in here and just started shooting? All of a sudden, Ooh. like sometimes I'll just be in movie theaters and be like, oh, God. And like, I don't know what this says, but like. Like the movies, the movies where I'm most concerned that someone's going to come in and start shooting are almost always something like. Um, like Black Panther or like Captain Marvel, where like in my head, like a racist or like an incel is going to come into this theater to like and take people. out as many limbs as possible. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, I do like, have no. that concern sometimes. Like, I I'm go to see the re-release of Everything Everywhere All at Once, it's like, and they start spraying. It's like, I'm about to be Everything Everywhere All at Once. I'm sorry. That's a, <laughs> that's Such a, really a good bad... movie, though. Such a oh, good it's movie. fantastic. Yeah. I, that was, I gave that my movie of the year on my, uh, my, on my movie year list. I'd, I'd, I'd have to agree. Like that movie was great. And even Can't though I did see AI. A, yeah. Even though I did, uh, I did see a couple of movies from this year after writing that list. Um, they did not impact where that movie was on the list. Um, although the menu also excellent chef's kiss. I need um, to see that. Um, it's, it's really good. I read up a little bit on it. I was like, I wasn't sure what to take of it when I first heard about it. And now I'm like, Oh, I need to see this movie. I mean, actually, um, it's kind of about some of the stuff we were talking about here today, um, which is that it's it's about the relationship between um, the artist and the consumers of the art. And capital, too. Oh, yeah. And capitalism is in there, too. But there's a really heavy emphasis on like. And it uses it uses like a foodie background for it and like all his victims represent some type of relationship to him as an artist. I won't spoil it, but. I, I yeah. definitely recommend I definitely I, recommend checking it out. I mean, I'm the kind of person that will if I'm interested about something and I'm on the line, I might spoil it for myself. And I happen to do that for the menu. But I don't want to spoil it for other people that maybe listen to this and haven't seen it yet. That's fair. Uh, but uh, I definitely know what you're talking about. Like, it's why I need to sit. I just need to sit down and watch it. I it's just one of those I, movies where I'm like, I know I'm going to like it. I highly recommend it. That one did actually manage to break into my top five post post publication of my release of my list um movie that didn't was top gun it was fine it's nostalgia i think and also because it it, it looks like a pretty competent movie it so looks like I, that it's fun so maybe i didn't care as much because i've never seen the original top gun so like so like in the scenes with Val Kilmer, I wasn't like taken in by like his character. I was instead like, you know what? I'm really happy that Hollywood decided to find a way to put his character in the movie, even though he is now technically uh, has 
uh, a disability that makes it very difficult for him to get parts. So I'm glad Hollywood did that for him. But, uh, but like, uh, I don't know. The movie was just okay. Like, it's a lot of, the action scenes are great. I honestly, I thought the romance was cringe. I was like, oh, just uh, like that. His girlfriend's only in that movie, so he has someone to tell his feelings to. Yeah. That's, that's not, that's not good writing. Want to have better writing than that. And also, like, it's, it's literally just they, they took one part of Star Wars and were like, what if we made the whole movie this? Which leads to, this is at least a, a question I have regarding uh, AI art. What do you see as the future? Of AI like, art? Uh, yeah, I guess a two-pronged near future and possible like going down the line. Because this could fizzle out. Public outcry could maybe shelve AI art in a certain type of way. But I, that doesn't typically happen to emerging technologies as much. Uh, this isn't like a pet rock type of situation or uh this is more like going into like new tech so i don't think it's gonna go away yeah no um so you you asked you when we previously talked about this you mentioned a few things that you thought might be legitimate uses for ai art like um filling in extra frames of animation um in movies so that artists didn't have to necessarily draw every single frame which would uh, also destroy jobs for in-betweeners. That's a good point. That's still not. Yeah. Ne- that's still it's not, not necessarily, necessarily a good. Great. It's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, it is a a a. T- it could be a powerful animation tool to make it so animators could have more control. It makes things a little bit faster. Uh, which which. I mean, I do I do agree that that is a benefit. It could benefit the which in that regard it could benefit the animators themselves. Maybe they get through projects faster. Maybe they're able to do more projects. There are potential benefits there. Um, and that is, that is assuming that AI gets to the point where it can do good enough in-betweens in order to do like that for like digital art and like stuff so, like that. So in regard, so the other thing though, is that the only real, so like the only thing I can really think of in terms of what the real value of AI generated art might be to society would be if we could potentially use AI art, like art itself, to measure for sentience. And what I mean by that like is- for the AI? Yeah, for the AI. So what, excuse me. So what I was saying before is that I don't consider AI art to be real art because it's this one-sided Rorschach test type deal where it's literally, the, the AI is just trying to fill our parameters. It doesn't, it's not trying to say anything. It has no message to communicate. It's just doing what we're telling it to. And then our brains are extrapolating from it. And a lot of times it's basically just a lot of experiments and stylization. Like on, like if you go on YouTube right now, there's all these videos where it's um, this song, but every lyric, but every line of the song is generated a new image or um, this pop culture thing, but in the style of dark eighties fantasy film. Uh, so many of those are my YouTube feed right now. Uh, find out what the Justice League or or Pac Man would be like as as a dark eighties fantasy. Um, yeah, 
but like, and that's, those are just, those things are cool, but they're just experiments in stylization, really. Yeah. Um, they, don't, they don't necessarily have any meaning, but if an AI could create a piece of art without prompts and then tell us why it made it and what they made it for or what they were trying to express with it, that could be a pretty good indicator of AI self-awareness. So does that... Um... But the problem is, is that the AI would have to want to choose the subject matter itself for it to actually tell us anything about the AI. It requiring an unimaginably large database. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the AI of, would all, have all to be genuinely things. inspired as opposed to given parameters. And parameters can be used to inspire human beings. That's, that's a fair argument. Like there's lots of artistic exercises um, for writers and improvisers and painters that are essentially just, you know, parameter-based exercises that teach you how to do things or inspire or just get you clicking up there. I also think that we're going off of this, uh, this assumption that like we're at a point where AI is that complex. I mean, that's that's one of the things they're starting to talk about. It it is, but I think it's very much in the like from from what I've I may not have been looking at the same stuff that you're looking at, but from like most of the things I'm looking at, it's more in the like we're still in the hypotheticals. Yeah, we're still in the early infancy of a lot of AI stuff. A lot of stuff where there's a lot of false positives going on. There are some people that were well regarded within the communities that have said like, yo, I made this chat AI and it's really understanding me. And then a bunch of people in the in in, in their groups were like, yo, dog, you just have grown close to this AI because it's feeding you what you want because it believes that's what you want to hear. Uh, th this isn't really proof of an AI of actual sentience. This is proof that you you're imprinting on AI uh, mm -hmm. because it's giving you the validation you want. So I don't think we're particularly there. That'd be something like way off in the future, maybe. Because uh, a lot of this comes down to like, just what's the actual technology of how this AI is constructed and what is sentience is also uh, such a heady subject. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people who are saying that AI can't be sentient because they don't have a soul. I mean, I don't quite believe in that because I don't really buy into the soul idea. So, <laughs> Also, like so like a thing that's bl been blowing my mind a lot lately is the fact that I recently discovered within like the last year or so that not everyone has an internal monologue. Let me ask you, Joe, do you have an internal monologue? I do. And, I, have an um... I have an internal monologue also. And I recently found out that there are actually a lot of people in the world who don't have internal monologues. And frankly, I don't know how they function. Yeah, I need a, I, I, I need the voice on the side of my shoulder thinking like thinking things. Like, how do you apply critical? Th like, do you like I do know some people like talk out loud, like will think out loud. I, I assume yeah. that's I mean, to be fair, I do that sometimes and I have an internal monologue, but I assume that maybe like some people without an internal monologue have to say things out loud to themselves, maybe sometimes. I don't know. Like. I mean, you don't have to internal monologue to like reason something through. 
it's just I an mean, easy I, way for us to kind of like bounce it off sometimes. I mean, I guess that's technically true, but like, how do you, like, how do like when I normally try to apply critical thinking to something that is like an internal monologue function that I'm doing, like I'm having like the back and forth in my head with the internal monologue of, okay, well, if this, then this, so maybe even this. Maybe but they're like, just doing it without monologuing it. Maybe they're just not hearing the thoughts. Like I'm, it's it's one of those weird things because the brain is complex and, and we only know how we think <laughs> as true. opposed to how other people's like mind processes actually pop off. Um, I, I so really want to really know. It's easy to go on like, how does that work? I really want to know. Part of me wants to know if there's a correlation between being conservative and, and left-leaning. And having an internal, yeah, yeah. Internal look like, oh, that answer a lot of questions. Like, all right, everybody in this room, all right, all you conservatives, do you guys have an internal monologue? And everybody raises their hand, no. I'll be like, mm, okay, well, Ruben, I guess there's some power to something here. I uh, a friend of mine was telling me that their 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 husband they just recently married so doesn't have an internal monologue, and they say they can't figure out how they how they function, but. According to them, their husband like basically says that their thinking is more like image and feeling based. Mm. Which like which which that that like throws me off because like in my mind, like just from all my understanding of the world, it's like those are a very easily manipulatable things. I mean, so is so is uh um that's true. You can, inter- you can, inter- there's there's gaps in everything. Like, I mean, that's um, true. You like, can you like, can you can mess like, with someone's critical thinking. You can make someone overthink things. Lord knows, as an internal monologuist, I can overthink things. Like my my wife has like photographic memory, and I'm sitting here like, how I can barely like if I'm cooking, I can barely remember the recipe I just looked at five seconds ago. Like I can't hold on to that visual uh, information yeah. for like a second. So conceptualizing yeah. someone able to look at something and go like, I got it. Close my mind. I'm like, I will look at a page for a straight like five minutes and try and remember, walk away, see a butterfly fly past me and then go like, huh, what was I supposed to be doing? I, oh, shit, I'm supposed to cook. I never trust. I never trust that I remember a part of a sequence correctly. Like eat. Like I will go back and check, like repeatedly when filling in some type of sequence from like a document or something. And you know what? Maybe that's why we monologue because that might be the only way we can hold on to that information. Is I mean, being maybe. able to talk it out. The interesting thing though is that I have. I do. I do know from doing that though that a lot of time. I actually haven't forgotten the sequence. I like, I'll go and I'll look, okay, it's like, oh, the sequence is exactly what I think it is. I go back and like, yeah. But I mean, like other times it's like, I don't know what's happening. Oh no, I, de- I definitely get that time where it's like, maybe I'm not trusting myself enough or I'm I'm loading a bunch of processes at once and doing a bunch of things. And I didn't realize like, oh yeah, you still remember that thing. You're just thinking about the other stuff at the same time. Here's an interesting thought. What if the easiest way to tell if, a, if an AI is actually sentient is actually not like how smart it is, but like actually how easy it is to make it doubt itself? Like, I mean, can AIs experience doubt? Maybe, maybe that's 
maybe that would be because like i mean that maybe that's a little too descartes i don't know yeah. i doubt therefore i am which is the actual quote not i think therefore i am uh but uh so maybe maybe that's the real test. The the real the real test is the Descartes test. If we can get AIs to question themselves or feel insecure, maybe maybe if we maybe if we could if we can if we can make an AI feel bad about something, it's a lie. <laughs> this might be a dangerous test. Yeah. Um I guess there is talking about like uh, AI art in the way of like AI itself, but where do we see it sitting within like how it's going to affect us uh, culturally and just like job wise and like the, the, what that future might hold? Well, if it's judging anything by the James Marriott of the Times interview uh, column. Uh, I would have to say that uh, it's going to empower douchebags who don't understand art because there are, bizarrely enough, there are a lot of people in the world who don't understand or even like art. Um, or just I did you it as just a doodad. I mean, like, I did a whole, I did an episode where I went over Prager U video about art, a couple Prager U videos about art. And the guy in those videos, uh, he was a, he he was listed as like a an artist like a sketch artist and like he teaches art classes but like he hate he is just he just vocally comes across as like extremely anti-modern art and like he he put the values of art entirely on looking good like aesthetic he, yeah no exactly he took the aesthetic Ooh. principles and well, like that's a, that's a really important thing for conservative thoughts because conservative a lot of people in the conservative fields uh a lot of the a lot of the people that are like uh the demagogues like your your stephen crowders all uh people in prager you if you look into their backgrounds a lot of these 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 talking point people uh ben shapiro they wanted to be in show business mm -hmm. stephen crowder is a failed comedian let's say he'd still label himself as a comedian now but he's a yeah. failed comedian uh ben shapiro wanted to get into script writing mm -hmm. um and there are a lot of them that had a background Dave Rubin, to get into art. Yeah. Dave Rubin was another and, failed comedian. Tim uh, Pool, another Tim, failed Tim comedian. Tim Pool makes music and also uh, has like an emo band thingy. Um, like all, and as um, I feel like that, that is important for a little bit of it that a lot of these guys uh, may have some uh, bound up resentments. And also, conservative thought uh, leans less towards critical thinking and more towards aesthetic. Uh, and we see that aesthetic use for like, look at what kind of characters that they like, look at what kind of worlds they like. When you see a lot of conservative people heaping praise on something like Warhammer 40K or Fight Club, they're not taking the same things out of that that you and I might. Because mm -hmm. Warhammer 40K is very clearly a satire and supposed to be a takedown of fascism. Colonialism, yeah. Yeah, and all that kind of fun stuff. Same thing as Starship Troopers. But if you put Starship Troopers in front of a conservative, they're going to take all the wrong lessons of it because they're not looking at it critically. They're looking at it aesthetically. In fairness, the book version of Starship Troopers is very serious about those things. 
That's fair. But also, most conservatives wouldn't read the book. That's fair. And if they and if they did, those are the ones that are pretty much more foregone. Oh yeah. Uh, most people that are going to engage with Starship Troopers mostly know about the movie. But yes, you're you are correct. Like that book is way more. The movie is satirical, fascist. and the book expects you to take it seriously. Yeah. Uh, Warhammer 40k is pretty much in, I- explicit and like, yo, um, if you really think this is serious, like this is taking yourself way too serious for you to take it serious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no, absolutely. Like that is that is a problem is that uh, like, I don't know if this is related, but it's the thing that's really started to annoy me is like some like sometimes like when I look at like when I look at like the memes that like fans of series put out, like I'll look at them and I'll be like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, so just as an example, a lot of that sometimes Zack Snyder fans, I saw this meme where they had, where the, it was a Zack Snyder fan meme where they had Zack Snyder as general Zod and Warner brothers as, as Jor-El and like, and like, it's one of the it's one of Zod's lines from the movie that's been altered to be like a takedown of Warner Brothers, but like my entire thought on the thing was, why the fuck would you make Zack Snyder the bad guy from the film? That's not coherent with your own. Like in the movie, Zod's goal is to take over Earth and turn and change its environment into his own thing. Like the- oh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how that happened. That's e- that's easy because they're not viewing it critically. They're not viewing it in the actual events of the of the movie. They took a bunch of clips and they said, "I like Zack Snyder movies. I like DC. This character looks has the look of the thing that I want to put this overlay on." Mm-hmm. It is purely using aesthetic. It is clearly clearly just using these pieces without thinking about how they fit contextually. Mm-hmm. And thinking how what it may present when someone stops to think about what those images look like outside of the meme. Yeah. It is uh, also catering to a base that agrees with that view, no matter who those characters would be. Fair. Fair. Because so you knowing that context breaks it for you. But the average person already agrees with that base idea would not care about where they put there. And if they were, they'd be sticklers. They'll be like, well, then that's kind of silly, but they probably agree with the base thing regardless. Oh, actually, I did that just reminded me. The meme that I saw that really set me off on this one message board was uh was one where someone took the Kanye West Alex Jones interview <laughs> and they gave they gave they gave Alex Jones a line that was like supposed to be like essentially like apologia for like Warner brothers. And then they gave, and then they, and then they made Kanye West line. Instead of saying, I like Hitler, they made him say, I like Batfleck. And like my comment was, wait a minute. Why are you in here comparing Batfleck to Hitler, Zack Snyder and Batfleck to Hitler? And he's like, well, no, the joke is that, well, it's a meme. And the joke is, is that he said a controversial thing. And it's like, but that's not, that's not how that works. Yeah, that's how you, that's how you get conservatives that, that compare, that compare their plight to the Holocaust. Like it's it's that line Mm -hmm. of thinking that leads you there. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you, when you're looking at, uh, again, it, 
a part of it is that aesthetic thinking. You're thinking like, oh, this is similar enough. This looks similar enough. It feels similar enough. So this is going to be a one. Whether your intent is saying it's one to one or not, you're making this large. You're making this large claim, and you're not thinking about those impacts. So mm-hmm. when someone call someone, when someone calls you out on it, you be prepared because you made like a really bad take. Yeah. No. Is it? It was a. It was a garbage meme. <laughs> Because I, I heard someone, uh, I, I heard someone try and defend uh, the Gina, uh, the, the how Gina Carano got the the axe from Star Wars oh, yeah. when she was saying the agreements of like being, I think what was it, uh, being a conservative is comparative to being a uh, a Jewish person in in 1940s uh, Germany, uh, basically a bunch of memes like that that she was popping off at the time, and uh, someone was talking to me and was like, well, I kind of see where they were coming from. Because like right now it's kind of like that, that, that. And like I, I snap back at him, of like I snap at him. But like I, I came back at him like, well, yeah, but those two things aren't really comparable. There's a difference between you have political views, I disagree with you, and you are a you have this autonomy as a person, and we're going to gas you and kill you and like take away your rights. Those are two completely different things. Mm-hmm. But uh they're they can you can say they're kind of similar enough because something's being taken away in both cases or someone's being opposed in both cases. So yeah, I guess in that way, but that's like a mostly an aesthetic thing. I, I like the thing about it is, is that people just want to defend Gina Carano and they don't really care. Like, yeah. like, don't get wrong. Like I'm not like, I'm not even going to say whether or not it was right or wrong for the Disney corporation to fire her for what she said. But like when it happened, I was like, oh, no, that makes total sense that they would do that. Like the woman literally went on Twitter and like she had been controversial and edgy and saying some fucked up shit for a minute, mostly about pronouns and the vaccine. But like the but like literally she got on Twitter one day and she was like, I'm going to compare people being mean to me for my opinions to the Holocaust. And then didn't expect there to be any backlash from that from her employers. Like the number one thing about corporations isn't that they're woke and it's not that they're whatever. The truth about corporations, especially corporations like Disney, is that Disney wants to be politically they want to be seen as politically neutral as possible, which means that they are always trying to find a fine line between inclusion and not alienating people. And people going on the Internet and comparing other people being mean to them to the Holocaust is not politically neutral. No. And also, like, Disney is connected to a lot of important people who are Jewish. Um, And Star Wars is connected to a lot of people who are Jewish. Like, George Lucas is best friends with Steven Spielberg. Like... Did you not expect these people to take your comparison to the Holocaust poorly? Yeah. And it's also, it also shows a fun, like when people are doing that, it shows a fundamental, like we talked about before, a fundamental misunderstanding of history and also like the importance of things, like being able to scale things. Mm-hmm. It's like, yo, you're allowed to feel away. You can feel aggrieved at the things that are happening to you. But when you, especially when you're at someone who has as much outreach and social power as someone like Gina Carano, 
on like I, I would love to say we should could live in a world where everyone is treated equally. We are not. Gina Carano, you are seen as a celebrity. So that means your words hold more weight than me. I could say something similar like that. And the amount of blowback I have would be possibly proportionately less. Mm-hmm. Really I depends mean, on what happens there. It really depends on how it pops off and where it picks up. Kind of luck of the die. Gina Carano, unfortunately, has way more. Yeah, however, however it lays for her is like she has way more weight in her words. So there's responsibility there in being able to like a celebrity should be able to kind of check what they're doing there. Absolutely. It, uh, and another thing a lot of people tried to say about the Gina Carano thing is a lot of people kept being like, but Pedro Pascal, he compared stuff to the Holocaust. Well, yeah, but what Pedro Pascal compared to the Holocaust was um, the border detention camps, yeah. uh, also known as, you know, concentration camps. Um, and you yeah, can would, say- and, act, and actually has actual, like, there's actual proof and evidence that the things they were doing there wasn't just keeping people there. There also, was a doctor that was going and doing awful people to the women. I mean, awful things to the women, <laughs> rather. But uh, also, his comparison wasn't about him. Yeah. He wasn't trying to be like, boo-hoo, my feelings. Why are people being mean to me on the internet? Like, that's not, like, they were very different. And, like, it's, sometimes it blows my mind that conservatives can't see context uh, or can't, like, I don't know it's, if it's deliberate. Like, they don't want to see how things are different or the same. Like they don't want to see like the details that actually differentiate things. Like there's so many people out there that are like, well, I don't see how January 6th is worse than any of the uh, BLM riots. And it's kind of like, you don't? They're completely different. Like the only thing they have in common is that they're- The riots. Yeah. Like- And and that's the thing, like a lot- Fortunately, a lot of people will see it like as a one-to-one as, oh, these words are similar. It's like saying, and, oh, oh, you have you have a, you have a skin melanoma versus you have a brain tumor. Like the both of them, you could say, oh, you have cancer. But like one of these, we can take care of a lot if we get it. I mean, if it, I mean, melanomas can progress to terrible levels. But if you get it soon enough, you can just nip it in the bud. As opposed yeah. to you have a brain, a brain tumor, it's gonna be it's a big deal no matter how minor it is. Yeah. And and my thing is like it's it's a huge it's a huge aggrievement issue. Mm-hmm. Uh as a as a on the, the smaller scale of average people, um, it's a lot of their aggrievements made manifest in a way for them to try and uh and try and express it, I feel. And that's exacerbated by the fact that most of the talking heads that will give uh, give their base fuel, I would wager that a large amount of them know that they're wrong, that a large amount of them know better, that a large amount of them have looked at all this data, have had conversations, have had better schooling than most of their base, even though that that the schooling that they're talking about are the ones that they openly rally against. Uh, because otherwise they would not be able, it would be a lot harder for them to be able to construct uh, 
the 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 complex game of jumping through hoops that is involved to get their base to follow along uh with with these things mm-hmm. uh I, I i have a belief that people like ben shapiro matt walsh uh, a lot of these guys know a lot about what they're talking about and know that they're wrong they know like yo the, the like at least on fundamental levels like they definitely disagree with them and feel like at the end of the day it's like yo this is what we want but they know that they're blowing smoke up people's asses. A large group of them is what I would wager. I wouldn't. I mean, there was a hot mic situation, I think, at the at Fox News where uh, one dude was caught on on mic saying, like, uh, us not respecting our audience's intelligence has been the greatest move we've ever done. Nice. Like that. And I, I don't think that's a one shot thing. I feel like there's probably a. There's been all kinds of other stories I've heard within like Fox News and all those types of things where people have said as much or admitted things on that line of like, yo, we are taking advantage of this, which shows uh, that they know they're full of shit of what they're saying. I mean, the news the news wants to have news to tell you, regardless of if they actually have any real answers or things to tell you. Like I actually I saw a local news uh, story recently here here in here in Ohio where uh, it was on Fox 8 News. And these local news anchors were talking about the fact that even though crime was up, arrests were down. And so and they, they said, we're going to do a Fox 8 investigation into into these numbers. Side note, they didn't reveal anything interesting, but also like those aren't the only numbers that matter in that situation like like those numbers don't like for starters the higher arrest rates before isn't the same thing as higher conviction rates like they didn't talk about conviction rates because how do we know that those larger number of arrests did accomplish something like a lot of people can be arrested and it not come of anything or even be arrested for any good reason yeah and that's so and also like are, are For, all, how many people are actually doing the crimes like it's not complete information it's not complete statistics it's just a scary picture yeah it, they it's want you fear. to think maybe the police aren't doing their job and, and they should get I, more money and i do have a lot of problems with the police but like they don't like they put up those numbers and then they don't really go into any of it to they just try and like catch people on phone calls and be like why are arrests down and crime is up like it's not a complete picture these are incomplete elements yeah but it paints compelling television narratives yeah which is the other thing is like News is not a substitute for ha- uh, seeking out a full picture of like what's going on, because uh, news is also a product. Mm-hmm. What's a fun one is that a lot of like a thing, a thing a lot of conspiracy theorists will say is like, but if you if you look at when they first reported it, they said this, and then later they said this. Well, yeah, because the early reporting is almost guaranteed to have problems with it. Like yeah. that's that's when we're reporting something without knowing the whole story. Ah, the old conspiracy brain. 
And I mean, then you got so many other elements like we, we lie with statistics all the time. Like you got your you got your VAERS verification system where they're like, look at all these negative VAERS reports for vaccines. But like if you actually but and it looks bad until you do the numbers and you realize that even if every single VAERS one was real and every single VAERS one was was a death, which they aren't, um, they would still be the vaccine would still be statistically much safer than getting the virus. Like the virus killed at like what 0.3 percent? Well, the vac. Well, if the virus numbers were accurate for the, for the vaccine, that would mean that the vaccine killed at zero zero point twenty five percent. Yeah, because because a lot of people tend to use statistics like these are numbers. Science is God. Um, we should believe in them implicitly. And then when someone is already buying into that. You, it's very easy to mislead them by creating a narrative with those numbers that already sit into maybe someone's biases or so you can do fun stuff like take a bunch of statistics and place it on something broad, so broad that the statistics would actually have no bearing on what it is, but it sounds just scary enough to get you to hate a specific group of people or be fearful of a thing or believe that something's not a big problem because we overlaid those statistics, even though technically they may be correct within certain ranges. Uh, it's not a full picture because mm -hmm. you could say like, oh, here's the total deaths that happened around the U.S. versus all the other deaths that happened. And it's like that's not a full picture, though, because you're not looking at whether the demographics uh, affected. Uh, what are the average deaths of those regardless? Like if you're going to compare those deaths to, to vehicular deaths, like that's going to be a different type of conversation mm -hmm. because vehicular deaths have a whole lot of other factors that go onto it and those numbers stay a specific way for their own set of reasons that are not linked in any way to like dying from a vaccine or dying from COVID. The, the dumbest anti-pandemic uh, restrictions argument I ever heard was someone uh, this someone said, I think it was on Twitter, but they basically they were they were saying, you know, you know, way more people are killed every year by vehicles and the government doesn't do doesn't put in any restrictions like this. And it's like, hold up. That's not accurate. The government tries like hell to restrict and cut down on automotive vehicle deaths. Like we have so many laws to try and lower that number. Yeah, like, tra like traffic driving, laws. Uh, traffic, lo uh, tons of traffic laws, licensing procedures. Um, street lights. Street lights. Like, general regulations all over the place. Seatbelts, for God's sakes. And one could what can even argue just changing the speed limit in different areas is a way to regulate whether uh, whether there's going to be like uh, more occurrence of vehicular like deaths mm -hmm. there, be, or instituting like stuff like school zones in certain areas or yeah. being able to put a sign that says like, yo, there's a lot of there's a lot of children across this area. Like that's putting something out for someone to see that will change how they approach that area that can possibly limit those numbers more. Absolutely. But people don't get it. People don't get it. It's not thinking with your noodle. It's thinking. Yeah. It, it's thinking in. It is thinking intuitively. Yeah, and the, intuition is intuition is tricky. Intuition doesn't have the meaning that people know because your intuition is one of those things where, like, 
the world is programming your intuition while you are also programming your intuition. Your choices and your lifestyle and everything that you encounter is going to affect your intuition. And no one has a complete enough picture to really and truly trust intuition. Everyone's going to have blind spots, no matter how strong their quote unquote intuition is. And the other is thing why is, there's so many conservatives that lie on that thing of like, I, the reason I believe in these things is because this is the life I lived and I, I've seen a whole bunch of different stuff. And I feel confident in this because I've talked to a bunch of people and I've heard their stories and I've seen what they've gone through. And I can trust in that. And that's true. And that's right. That's not all the way correct. Mm -hmm. Intuition has its limits. Intuition is great if you go to a stove and you see that it's hot and you see that it's boiling water. You don't want to touch that stove. Intuitively correct. But if you're trying to get into something that has far more working parts in it, intuition will begin to fail. Uh, if trying to solve, solve the poor problem intuitively, I want to get rid of the poor. All right, then we're going to stop start housing. We're going to stop housing them. We're going to like police them more. That makes the problem worse. Mm -hmm. uh, but intuitively, it seems like it could work that way. You know, what's better than intuition, people. History. Looking up history. Because because you've touched on something there. I want to comment on real quick. I hear a lot of people, a lot of people, especially conservatives, are down on the social safety net. But if they would just read history, they would know that America's already done the version without the social safety net. We've already done that. Oh, we already lived that way. That ex America already existed and it sucked. And our solution to the problems that it created were terrible. Um, because our was it we're living in this uh, was it we're living in the second gilded age? So what happened was is that at a certain point, Society developed a lot of people who couldn't take care of themselves or had who had no one that could take care of them. People like single mothers, people with learning disabilities that hadn't yet been identified, um, all types of disabilities, alcoholism, homelessness, um, act actual mental illnesses. And they took all these problems and they said, OK, we have a solution. And they're called poor houses and sanitariums, which are just prisons for people who can't take care of themselves. So they would send people to live in these workhouses and poorhouses and sanitariums where they would essentially be in squalor and prison type situations. It was horrifically draconian. And we locked up people back then who nowadays um, we would say, oh, hey, here's some Adderall. You're good. Have a have a full productive life. Yeah. And people don't seem uh, we're to realize both, we're that. We're both we're both thinking of the same period of time, right? I assume this is like um, lady. This is like late eighteen hundreds through early twentieth century. Yes, that's Gilded Age, I believe. Um, I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't. Um, um, actually, a lot of these practices continued in America into the seventies. Um, hmm. The seventies was actually the last decade where we sterilized people with disabilities uh, legally. Yeah, but I do know the thing that th that moved us towards out of that was rapid social reform. Activism. Activism was the thing that moved us out of it. Um, it started with um, parent groups who wanted to take who wanted to take their children out of who didn't who no longer responded well to doctors being like, 
oh yeah no your kid's got a thing wrong with his brain you should put him in a you just put it we, we're gonna just lock him away and you should just forget he was born uh in the 70s people stopped responding well to that and then later there was um a major protest um held across several cities although the only one that uh stuck was the one in san francisco where a bunch of um, disability rights activists and people with disabilities had a sit-in, um, a sit-in protest in the, I believe it was the uh, Health and Welfare Building in San Francisco, and they let they had a sit-in there for 26 days. Um, they were in during that time. They were supported by a variety of different social groups, including the Black Panthers, uh, the Machinist Unions. Um, even the uh, less favorably viewed today, but the uh, ah, shit, what are they called? Uh, um, Salvation Army. Um, all these people help bring them supplies and even like showers and and beds to sleep in the building on. Mm. And then that legislation um, got got announced and um it got it got moved into it got signed but it never got ratified um and then jimmy carter ran saying that he was going to ratify it oh wait or was that before this protest i can't remember if that was before or after this protest but jimmy carter said he was going to sign the thing and he didn't um but it's even then it took years more activism um the ada was eventually signed by george hw bush um, after having all the presidents through the 70s and 80s that basically say, oh, we want to do it, but, and by but they mean employers didn't want to hire people with disabilities. Yep. Okay, I, 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 I get what you're saying now. I was going like a little bit towards more like a broad period of time, but no, I get it. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I just have, <laughs> I guess I just have more specific uh, events in my mind, but I mean, there oh, was yeah, also- yeah, no, I get it. Of course, there was also Social Security, um, which was actually what took old people out of the poor homes. Um, We don't talk about that. So many old people would be in poor homes if we didn't have a safety net now. So many. I mean, there was also like how we were treating military. Oh, yeah. What was it? uh, Part part of the, uh, what was it? One of the, was it after World War One? I think the soldiers came home and they were so poorly pre- treated and they were all falling into like poverty and they tried, I think it was after world war one. And, um, but they, they basically marched on Washington and the police came out and beat the shit out of everybody. <laughs> and that became Sounds a big a- thing of like trying to get better treatment. Because Funny like how America things was never change. Yeah. Cause America was like pretty appalled with that. Like the American public is like, these are people that fought for you and you treat them like that. Um, like we have a history, a very storied history of uh, uh, treating the most disenfranchised that poorly until it gets to a breaking point where something has to change. Uh, and we've had pockets of our history where it seemed like things were going to be better, like shortly after the Civil War when there was supposed to be the um, – everything was supposed to get reformed. And then that got shut down because for some reason they let the racists back in the house. I don't know why. Even though around the world and everybody at the time was like, yo, why are you letting all these generals assume seats of power again? Don't you think they'll just do it again? Not only uh, that, but like, it's it's weird how like, 
black history specifically gets distorted so much so much it's like we don't we don't we like if an unknown a person who hasn't looked into it would look at it as basically being like oh black people were free and then they just never caught up with anybody but it's actually much more complex than that like there were Every step there were of the way we kept on getting pushed slightly back down the stairs yeah, as we're walking back up the stairs yeah, after this after the civil war there were like there were like black congress people um for a little bit and then at some point i think even in, i think in the 20th century i think it i think don't quote me on they this but i think it, they got i think it was time. woodrow wilson uh or somebody it may have been before Rid, woodrow wilson but somebody eventually was like no man no no black congress people and I then mean, basically were, they were pushed out of power yeah yeah and, and then there, there weren't any for decades yeah even though the common sense thing during during uh uh, I think it's called the reformation uh, during, during that period was like trying to, to shore up the gaps and say, yo, we have to make sure black people have some political and economic powers and things were starting to go fine. And also there was a focus on poor, like just poor Americans in general and poor white people. And uh, the train kept on going for the white people. And then the black train stopped and they were like, yo, yo, y'all don't need to keep on going. Y'all gone for, for far enough. Uh, and well, they wanted them history. on separate trains was a big part of it. They, yeah, like those trains uh, had to be separate. Yeah, they had to be separate, which is also part and parcel. Like, it's it's which, link, everything is linked because, like, just that separation is also a function of making sure that poor people as a whole have no bargaining power anyway. Because uh, one train filled with a bunch of unified people is a lot stronger than like five different trains uh that have their that have to fight individually for their rights mm-hmm. uh and that is very much a, a what has happened to us historically is that separation to make sure that we have no unified uh unified ability to fight for our rights mm-hmm. and i also find it funny that historically whenever um now we don't have to worry about it because there's so much white noise and any uh political leader that could get any uh, social political leader that could get power would just get drowned out. Um, but during the 70s, there's a lot of people that seemed to die right around the time they were saying, maybe this isn't about Black people. Maybe this is about all poor people. And then they ended up dead. Yeah. <laughs> like, whenever that happened, it just... <laughs> and eventually, the apparatus got so strong, you don't have to kill those people anymore. Uh, but, I mean, like, like it it's almost very like strange that all those people ended up dying, right? Yeah, no, it <laughs> like it, it, there seems to be like a big thing historically where like the second the second someone is suddenly like, well, you know, we should really do something about helping the poor. It's like we got to kill that guy. It's like, well, and and they're leaning in and they're going like, poor black people, right? You you mean poor black people? You still want to live, right? Poor black people? No, no, all poor, all poor people. Oh, I gotta make a phone call, and then ends up dead. <laughs> like uh, Fred Hampton, I mean, they, they, Malcolm we, X, Martin Luther King Jr., and countless Jesus. others. Jesus, this is the story of Jesus. Do you think they wanted to kill him before he got mad in that temple? Before no, he came in story. and just started throwing out the money lenders? Do you think he, he came, came in with a freaking whip? Yeah, maybe came that's when they switch, decided. Like ah, huh. I'm pretty sure that was when they had the conversation afterwards. They were like, okay, we got to kill this Jesus guy. 
Right? We can deal with one disenfranchised group. We can't. There's a lot on our plate right now. We can't handle them all. He's out here like, stopping stonings. He's he's throwing out money changers. Oh no, he's this is not good. He's he's encouraging people to share. It's not good. Like the entire apparatus is going to fall apart, and like that's kind of what it is because like rapid left change is breaking apart a lot of this apparatus. A lot of people that are investing in and keeping our systems afloat will lose unimaginable power if we got even some of the things that we wanted that can help people. Uni universal health care and uh, a, a regular working wage that is fair to everyone would destroy a lot of companies, small and big. It would not, it would not do well to their bottom line because capitalism is built on uh, uh, growth above all else. <laughs> so... And helping is, people doesn't really jive. Which is also the attitude of a tumor. Mm -hmm. You heard it right there. Capitalism's cancer, people. Cancer. And I've gotten into arguments with friends about it where they're like, well, you hate capitalism a whole lot. It's like, listen, listen, I hate late stage capitalism. I'm okay if you want to open your own business and do stuff. As long as you're right by everybody you're working with and everybody's being treated fairly, that's fine. But that, but know that when I'm talking about this, it's not that. Mm -hmm. We 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 talk about something much bigger and more sinister. And maybe, just maybe, your business and practices might be tied to that, and you might want to look at that and think: mm -hmm. Is it sustainable? Are these systems sustainable? Because mm -hmm. our current our current state of being right now in the world is definitely not. Yeah. I mean, like that is that is a big issue. The lack of sustainability. Like people don't really seem to understand it. Like, but I've always done it this way. Well, you can't do it forever that way. That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, like, no wonder no wonder billionaires want to go to outer space because without outer space, there's nowhere for capitalism to expand to. Yeah. We have to go to space. Otherwise, what was the point? Yeah, we, we have to keep on going. We have to find something else to exploit. We're about to run out of stuff here. It will be time, unsustainable here soon. Time to start asteroid mining. And then as soon as that starts to happen and there's any model that makes it work, see how fast you start seeing like job programs happen for the poor. Mm -hmm. it's like get well, this I, specialized training training will pay your full board so you'll learn how to do the, this job that can support your family on earth because it's it, it's terrible down here and it's expensive all you have to do is sign this contract we'll send you into space you'll spend the rest of your days mining and we'll we promise the money will go to where it needs to go i mean this is the thing that people don't realize about the future of space travel which is that right now like most space travel is is experimental it's 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 like scientists and people who want to figure out how to do it. But the reality is, is that with space travel will eventually hit a point where like they're just throwing bodies at it. Yeah, because it's so friggin dangerous. You'll need like hundreds of poor people to get out there and do those space jobs because they, they don't have any way to support themselves on Earth. And we know this because, you know, Elon Musk comes out and he says shit like, Oh yeah, we got we'll have loans for poor people to go to Mars. And then they can just work them off on Mars. It's like, oh, you mean indentured the servitude. Of, you mean the plot of total recall? You're oh, describing indentured servitude, sir. 
Oh, is that I forgot about that part of Total Recall. It was like literally like, man, I know I know we've had multiple 80s villains that just exist nowadays. Trump notably, but Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are definitely 80s villains, too. Yeah. Hey, gang, let's take off QAnon's mask and see who they are. Oh, it was Trump all along. (laughs) And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling kids and your dog. It's like uh, when I think of 80s villains, I think of like a lot of them used to be are, are literally based off of like. Of a, of a Trump, like you oh, have yeah. like the bad guy from Double Dragon, you have the bad guy from Tank Girl, you have the bad guy from Tank Girl. Seems like it's going to be pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty relevant soon. With us I need to rewatch water at a rapid waste. Yeah, like the main bad guy has an apparatus. Like the world is run out of water, and the, he has an apparatus that, like, to collect debt, he'll just take all the water out of your body. Just drain it into a water bottle. Oh my god. Hey, wait a minute. That's like in Turbo Kid. Uh, also good. Movie. I think Turbo Kid. Yeah, I think Turbo Kid was definitely inspired by those movies. Oh, yeah. That's an underrated movie, by the way. Turbo Kid. That's a good one. I've seen bits of it in a bar. I need to sit down and watch the whole thing. I thought I as far as as far as movies that are homages to 80s trashy cinema, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I, I was watching. I was like, this looks like it would be incredible to watch with some sound and not with subtitles. <laughs> yeah, it's better with the sound. It's better with the sound. Um, but yeah. Uh, did you see that Space Jam movie? The new one? Um, what, the one? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I, I think that movie, one might be able to argue, was written by an AI. I, I can yeah because it's just a movie that's like look at all this stuff uh the thing that broke me the most is that the fact that they took out pepe le pew and kept the droops yeah i know a lot of people called them out on that that was uh that was a little ridiculous and and short-sighted that being said i just want to say that i do support taking out pepe le pew because he's like I, the worst looney yeah, tunes yeah. character ever yeah he's a, he, he's a sex pest yeah there's no, kind of well, there's kind of no great except Unless you do a Speedy Gonzalez style, like rewrite and reconceptualization of the character and make him a full on character. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, like his shtick doesn't work. What's wild is Mexicans actually really liked Speedy Gonzalez. (laughs) But like Pepe Le Pew, Pepe Le Pew is just like it's it was wild to me how many people wanted to defend his character when that came out. Like. Pepe Le Pew, like, it's like, have you ever seen a Pepe Le Pew cartoon? It's like literally one joke. And the joke is, is that this skunk wants to have sex with a cat and the cat does not want to have sex with a skunk. So the so the skunk just chases the cat around and slapstick ensues. That's the entire bit. There is no other bit. It's Tom and Jerry with sexual harassment. Yeah. No, exactly. And then, like, sometimes the skit, like, the closest thing to a comeuppance that occurs is, like, every once in a while, one of the skits will end with him being painted to look like a cat and her being back to a cat. And then suddenly she wants to have sex with the skunk because she thinks he's a cat. And suddenly he's like, oh, no, I don't have sex with cats. It's like. Yeah. 
it's 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 entire like I, I I don't think conservatives understand subtext. Like, is that the problem? I feel like that's the problem. I, I, I think it's that. And also, like, they also don't tend to understand how comedy might age. Well, that's, I mean, something that I talk, uh, that's something I've talked to about with friends a lot, where it's like, yo, like, it's okay if comedy ages. The thing I like as a child may not be okay right now. And that's perfectly fine. Because comedy can sometimes age like fine milk. And that's perfectly fine. Not everything's like Dr. Strangelove or uh, Duck Soup. And maybe one day those things will also stop being funny for reasons that are culturally connected. That's fine. So... So I've been wa- I've been rewatching a lot of um, the sketch series that used to, that I used to watch in college called The Whitest Kids You Know. Oh know you, yeah, I don't know if you ever seen them, but I'm still a huge fan of them. And actually, I do I do still think their sketches their sketches as far as absurdism are really funny. But like as I've been rewatching them, there is a point of it where I'm like, I could see someone taking the wrong messages from this. Yeah. That happened to me with uh, it, uh, going back and watching those. And also, uh, was it Donald Glover's old thing? Um, Derek Comedy, his old sketch group. A lot of his sketches don't age as well in the same kind of way. Mm-hmm. As white as kids, you know, where I would go back and like, there's the there's a sketch called the bro rape. And I thought it was hilarious when I was in, in college. Went back and watched it now. And I was like, Ooh, yikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, this doesn't hit in the same way yeah uh like i still i still find myself really enjoying the whitest kids you know but like and like to be fair when they were making it they were edgy like they were yeah <laughs> their their edginess was was very prominent even then um but like <laughs> they do have a lot of jokes that center around violence they have a lot of jokes that center around um they have a lot of jokes. There are a lot of uh, jokes that have like racism or, or, or rape in them. And, and like, I, I don't think there's any ill intent in, in those jokes. Um, but like, so like just an example of one of their classic sketches is this guy's trying to sell a commercial to a, to a grape soda company. And, oh yeah. No, that's and, and essentially like the, the 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 catch line is for the for the grape soda is get graped in the mouth or and like the mascot comes through a wall and yells at these children i'm gonna grape you in the mouth and like the whole idea of the sketch is that there's one guy in the meeting who sees what's happening and he's like guys this is this is terrible we can't we can't possibly but like whenever he brings up his concerns everyone else in the room is just like oh really that's what you think's happening here and like, like as he it, zip tied them to the radiator. Yeah, no, that's that's one of the lines. Like as it as it ends, uh, like one of the last lines in the ad, ad is, "I'm gonna zip tie you and your family to the radiator and grape you for decades." And like and like the guy is like signing the contracts and he's like looking at everyone else in the room. He's like, "I think it's too far. I just think it's too much." And <laughs> but everyone else has overridden him. And like and like. And like, it's sort of like, um, and like Daniel Tosh, like it's sort of like they're doing some of the same stuff that Daniel Tosh does in his comedy, which is that I don't believe Daniel Tosh really believes most of the things he does in his comedy. Daniel Tosh is just playing a game called say the most horrible thing. Yeah. And, 
and that's that's fine but like it's a game that you have to have a certain level of intelligence to actually understand like half the people are going to be laughing because they know it's like oh it's funny because that's terrible but there's going to be a portion of the of of the group that are like, <laughs> it's funny because it's true. It's like, no, that's that's not actually how that joke works. That's not. That's not. It's it's in the it's in the same vein of why satire can fail. Yeah, I, it's it's stupid. People don't understand comedy. That's yeah, that's a big problem. And it's also being able to have like a clear viewpoint and clear way to express what's there. And if it's muddled, people are going to take what they want from it. And sometimes it's okay if it's muddled, honestly. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's okay, if, like, uh, depending on what you're trying to do, if it is open to interpretation. Uh, but in these cases, it's just the intent of the piece seems to be just to shock mm-hmm. without any other introspection. And that's fun here and there, but th- if that's the only thing you have, mm-hmm. um, think about what that's going to look like when all that meat, like when that's all you're going to be consuming is mm-hmm. just shocking stuff. Yeah. And the thing about the thing about shock comedy is that shock comedy requires things to be taboo. Like yeah. shock comedians nowadays complain about cancel culture and wokeism all the time. But at the same time, it's like, dude, if no one was offended, what would your act be? Yeah. Like, if nothing's shocking, then there's nothing for shock comedians to do. Yeah, it's a game of towing the line. Yeah. I will say, I do think the whitest kids you know are a little bit more thoughtful than Daniel Tosh. Uh, yes. No no offense to Daniel Tosh. Uh, but, but, but yeah, no, sometimes comedy uh, ages poorly. Um, I mean, I'm why I, I, I almost rewatched all the Flintstones, except I couldn't because HBO Max took the last three, took like the last four seasons off of H off off for some reason. They only have the first three seasons up there now. It's like I was on the second to last seasons, you bastards. I was uh, wondering about that. I was like, oh, is he going to get all the way through it? Oh, no, it's all gone. No. But oh. uh, I got to find where to see the last few seasons. I was mad, though. But I might have to do it um, I might, yeah. with, with a nice pirate's cap. But like some of the some of the some of the Flintstones do, doesn't really age well. Like, um, although there are certain things in, in the Flintstones that are almost like elements of lost progressivism, like the Flintstones make fun of unions. But it's clear that the Flintstones also depict working without a union sucks. Like it's it's very much a thing that's in there. It's like people make fun of unions in the show, but at the same time, it's clear it would improve their social situation. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is that, but like a lot, like the early seasons of the Flintstones, like honestly, the Flintstones was almost a completely different show before they had kids. Hmm. Like before they had kids, it was almost entirely about how toxic their marriages were. What, like the honeymooners? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it was based off the honeymooners. Like, yeah, it's like animated honeymooners, basically. But like even after they had kids like that, almost every like the problem with the Flintstones is it's literally a show about a husband and wife who there is nothing. These people won't lie to each other about like almost every episode is them being like, I could explain this situation to my wife, but let's make you know what? Let's just pretend it's not happening and try and take care of it without them knowing or the wives do the same thing. (laughs) And it, it's oh, just I'm, I'm 
I want Const- to get, I, constant toxic I wanna, behavior. I want to get into this more because like, uh, well, one, I want to say like we, uh, yeah, no, it's, it we've, we've gone for a while now. We, we, sh- we should take, we should, we should start wrapping it up. So I propose at some point, uh, we have touched on AI, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I do, I would love to talk more comedy and specifically more on animation because that is something I do love talking about. Because Absolutely. like I'm, he- I'm hearing this stuff about uh, the Flintstones and it makes me think, this will be like my last point for wrap up for this particular thing, is like animation history wise, the Flintstones uh, came out at a time when uh, TV animation was starting to become a thing. Mm-hmm. But it also was this interesting time where animation was starting to settle from this is uh this is an art form that works for uh the family and it's for everyone and adults can enjoy uh animation and uh there are a lot of different things we can do to it to tv commercialism and can and 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 capitalism getting its hands on animation in a specific way where this is going to be used as something to market purely for kids like we're starting to reach that we're we're starting to reach that point uh as the Flintstones is getting traction. So I can see, I think you can see in real time, Flintstones change from a show that's for the adults, the family, more for children. Well, almost everything from the 50s is now for children. Uh, That's a weird thing. Um, Like if you were a child in the 80s, you were heavily exposed to like things that used to be adult, used to be like orientated towards adults in like the 40s and 50s and before. I uh, I recently did an episode where I watched a 1950s instructional video and I it led to me finding out the truth of where the song Jimmy Crack Corn comes from, hmm. uh, which is it's it's bad. It's from menstrual shows. But when Seems I was a, right. But when I was a kid, like that song oh, yeah, was right. in so much children's media, so much children's media. I mean, also like mm, this is what I want to talk about animation because I know, I know, we got Animaniacs and how Animaniacs is so heavily I, in, in, involved from like vaudeville and I vaudeville am, is connected to menstrual shows and it's like uh, I, talk about I American am, media. I am, mm. I am trying to sit on everything I realized about the Flintstones and race, but because because I know it's a whole can of worms, uh, but I I have noticed several things about race in the Flintstones. <laughs> Um, I, I, I love to talk about them because like the one thing I like breaking down is like our connection to animation because animation is a very, very American uh, uh, form of art. Form of art. Uh, it has definitely touched off and has transformed globally into all kinds of different fun things. Mm-hmm. But viewing our particular relationship to it and its connections to minstrel shows, vaudeville, music um expression uh is intensely interesting to me oh yeah uh, and you can definitely see that expressed within the flintstones within animaniacs within old looney tunes uh within the disney movies look at what voices are bolstered on the side for their music and stuff mm-hmm. is it's really interesting to me mm-hmm. absolutely all right well I've been talking with my friend Joe Lewis here, and uh, I hope I hope you've enjoyed our conversation. Um, at this time, I'd like to remind you to like, subscribe, thumbs up, whatever it is you do 
on wherever you get your podcasts to, you know, make my podcast more favorably viewed by the air algorithm. Also, I have a YouTube channel now where I'm slowly uploading these episodes. I'm starting with the video episodes because I'm going to have to edit in some type of visual for the audio episodes. Uh, <laughs> but um, please do check out uh, both uh, subscribing to this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the YouTube channel. Uh, is there anything else you'd like? Is there anything you'd like to plug, Joe? Oh, uh, nothing in particular. All right. Well, uh, obviously, I'm going to have to have Joe back on to have the to finish up some of these conversations we started here today. But uh, thank you for listening, and have a wonderful day. Wow. You can say goodbye to the people too, Joe. Bye, people. Yay. Yay.